Good morning, everybody. <laughs> I am really glad to be able to be with you like this and to look at God's Word uh, with you. We are in John 16, and we are continuing in our series entitled Unveiled. And the series is uh, the, the way that Jesus has unveiled himself to his followers uh, prior to his death. And so we have started in John 13, and we're plugging through all the way to the end of the book, which will lead us to Easter, or the Sunday after Easter, actually. And so today we find ourselves in John 16. But these are Jesus' farewell words to his followers right before he dies. So kind of the last words motif means this is important, and we find ourselves on the last of the last words, because in John 17, which will be next week, is when he praise for his followers. So we have kind of his final instructions here as we look at John 16. So what I want to do is I want to read um, verse 1 of John 16 and then verses 25 through the end of the chapter. So 25 through 33. And then we will uh, go at it together. Okay. So John chapter 16. I'll read verse 1 and then verses 25 through 33 and then I'll pray. Word of God reads as follows. John 16, 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own house and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fullness of these promises. Promises given to us that we might run to you and not away from you. And so, Father, we want to declare, and I pray you would do this work in our hearts right now, that you are enough for us. You are sufficient. Our greatest need is to have a relationship with you. The only way is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that on the cross, he was forsaken so that anyone who trusts in you 
would never be alone. No matter the trial, no matter the tribulation, we ask that you would give us a clear confidence that you are there and you are good. So do a healing work in our hearts where we're tempted to want to not listen or not process or not apply. Would you just melt our hearts this morning? Would you guard my words from error and keep me biblical through and through in order that we might have joy We might spread that joy, and you would get the glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Used cars are a fickle thing. We buy used cars as a family, and with the past two cars, um, we have ended up with cars that only have one key. Now, I don't know about you, But keys have a way of losing themselves. I don't lose keys, but they have a way of running away. Whether it's crevices in couches, whether it's, you know, in the sink, which we found our keys there before, whether it's, you know, in the refrigerator, um, where are our keys? We've had many a search. But I'll never forget this one time. We went to, um, off a pool road, there's access to Falls River, and my family and I went out there. We have our van and our one key to that van. It was one of those keys that it's not like keyless entry because it's it's we've had the car for, had the car for like eight years, but it's um it's got a remote thing, so you know it costs quite a bit to make another one, which is why we're sticking with one key. So we go to Falls River and we're out there and we're climbing on the rocks and you know where this is going, and we lean over one does and the key falls out of the pocket into the river that is not rushing at a slow pace. It is whoosh, this way. And so it falls, and tears begin to flow, and there is like, what do we do? How are we going to get home? What in the world? So I just said, okay, let's pray. We literally called out to Jesus and said, is there any way you would be merciful enough to help us find this key? And I reached into the water, Couldn't see a thing. Reached into the water. All I felt was dirt. My heart sank. I kept reaching around. All I felt was dirt. My heart sank. And then all of a sudden, I reached, and underneath the dirt, stuck in a rock, was my key. And I pull it out, and we're all celebrating and praising Jesus and very thankful that we get to go home today. So, keys are very fickle, and they are easily lost. But we tried to take care of it. But it is a possession. It's something that you can, you know, do with or without. But there's something that we tried to keep even more, and that is our children. When you deal with a person, the stakes are a little higher, right? And I'd do anything to keep my kids. I'll leave a lot of things behind, but I won't leave my children. There was one day, though, (laughs) when we were going to a restaurant And I thought my wife had taken my little girl, Mercy, into the restaurant. She had the other children. I thought she had that one. I close. I lock the door. I walk out. I go into the restaurant. I see my wife, and she looked panicked because she said, where's Mercy? That's my daughter's name. And I said, 
don't you have her? And she said, you know, not a low tense moment there. This was high tension. And it was like, no, what did you do? And so I'm running outside and my girl is crying in the car because I left her in the car. (laughs) Parent of the year award right here. So, but I would do anything for my children. I would do anything for them. I sacrifice for them. I work hard for them. I try to provide for them. I teach them about Jesus. I want to keep them and care for them. Jesus is passionate about the same type of keeping, but there's something that he wants us to be crystal clear about. He doesn't ever lose not even one of his children. He doesn't lose them. His grip is tight and firm. And yet, God uses means to keep His people His people. So what He says in John 16, verse 1, He says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And this is where a very unique mystery, yet congruent truths come together in the Scriptures. That Jesus does not lose His people. His people are kept and they are His. And yet, His people must choose repentance and faith in Christ. They must go after Him. The Bible here articulates that He is giving us Not only the words before, as Pastor Travis did a great job telling us about last time, but the hinge swings the other way too, and everything following is so that His people would be kept from falling away. So this is a very means of grace, so to speak. His Word, a means of keeping His people from running their lives over a cliff. The mystery is this. God keeps His people, but we are responsible to walk in obedience. The Scriptures are really clear in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It says that they went out from us because they were never of us, which means there is a possibility for people to profess with their mouths that Jesus is King and run away from Him later in their lives. And if they run away and never return to Christ, they are only proving that they were never in Christ. Because we're imperfect, right? I can't fully attest to everybody's faith. I can't say you're in, you're out. But Jesus knows completely who's in and who's out. Perfectly. He never loses any of His. However, the mystery is, this is a call to repentance and faith. This is a warning. The image that is used, I've used before that I use again is that these warnings to not fall away are like guardrails. What does a guardrail do? If your car is bent on going off the road, you hit the guardrail. It keeps you on the road. Warnings are meant to keep your faith following Christ. But there are some who would choose to not listen to those warnings and to run their life over the rail and over the cliff. I want to walk with you through just briefly what does it look like? 
Because I want you to know, I don't personally live in terror or fear that I'm going to fall away. That's not because I'm a pastor. That's not because I'm better than you. There are clear promises in Scripture that tell me a certain way I should live and pursue. I do live imperfectly as I am in a pursuit of the living God through the Word and prayer, rehearsing His promises for me, yet with an eye towards the attack of the evil one who tempts me regularly. And I must strive and fight for humility that I need the help of others to see the blindness in my own heart. And I must repent of those sins that I see and walk in love. This is what I must do. Rather than fear, I walk in faith. But what does it look like when the soul begins to unravel? What does it look like when the person begins to walk and step away? I want to give you seven things to look for. That the soul is shriveling, that coldness is taking over the heart, and that there is a danger of falling away. Number one, what does unraveling look like? It's when you stop pursuing God. Specifically, in His Word and in prayer. Number two, when you forget His promises to you and for you. When you forget that He has promised great things for you and you forget those promises and you start doubting God. Number three, when you become lured by the promises of other lovers. That's how the Bible talks about giving yourself to sin. It is a luring of other lovers. What might those be? Power, acceptance from others, relationships as a Savior, comfort through sex or through food. The devil is a liar, and he promises that those things will deliver you. What he doesn't promise you, or does he doesn't let you in on, is that they will also massively let you down when they are the ultimate hope, and he will kick you forever, telling you that you're not worthy and that you're a failure. He doesn't tell you those things. But when you become lured by the promises of other lovers, soul is beginning to unravel. Number four, when people warn you, yet you refuse to listen. And many times it's not just one person, but when multiple people warn you, like when Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, one person goes and pleads with you to turn, two people go and plead with you to turn, the whole church goes to you and pleads with you to turn, and you don't do it. When people warn you, you refuse to listen. Number five, when convicted, you keep walking in sin. When there's something in the heart that says, this is wrong, I should not walk this way, and you say, I don't care, I'm going to keep doing it anyway, the soul is growing cold. Number six, when love for others dwindles and you grow more self-focused, self-consumed, soaking in self-pity, my life is too hard, why don't somebody pay attention to me? Where are my rights? When my comes out of your mouth, 
more than how can I love the soul is growing cold. Love is dwindling. And number seven, you slowly stop living for God's glory. You stop asking the question, what pleases you? What gives you praise, O God? How can I get close to you? How can I show you off? Those questions begin to move away. And these never come individually. They're interwoven. When you distance yourself from the Word, your soul begins to be indifferent towards sin. When you give in to sin, your heart becomes more self-focused and less loving towards others. They're all interwoven and intertwined. And Jesus says here, I want to give you a Word so that you will not fall away. A Word that says, I keep my own. Our hope is not in our abilities to keep ourselves. It's in Christ's. But it does not mean that we don't have responsibility. And so what do we do with those warning signs? What do we do with them? The Bible calls us to repent and to turn. And if we do, He welcomes us with open arms. And honestly, with those warnings, that's what a believer does. It's not that we all haven't experienced one or multiple of those in our lives. But when the believer hears this word, they turn from it. And they run back to Christ. Jesus keeps His people and He wants us to be crystal clear about that. Look at John 17, verse 12. John 17, verse 12 says this, Jesus in His prayer to the Father, He wants it to be known that the ultimate responsibility of keeping is in His hands. And so He says, while I was with them, that is His followers, I kept them in Your name. Do you hear that language? I kept them. Did they have to believe? Yes. Did they have to pray? Yes. Did they have to repent? Yes. But who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Whose responsibility? Ultimately, does it hinge upon? I kept them, he says. I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Without the son of destruction betraying Jesus, Jesus would not have died. Our sins would not be forgiven. Jesus keeps all who are His. And so what He wants to tell us right now is there are three ways. Three ways, followers, that He has given us to keep us walking with Him. And that's why the name of the sermon is Kept by Love. He loves you. And He wants you to experience the fullness of joy of walking with Him. And so, He warns, He encourages, He gives us what we need so that we'll continue to walk with Him. The main idea is this. How does Jesus prepare His people not to fall away from Him? He tells them three things. One, don't be surprised at suffering. Two, he tells them to understand 
and to live in the Word of the Spirit. Three, he tells them to enjoy the peace of prayer. Don't be surprised at suffering. Live in the work of the Spirit. Three, enjoy the peace of prayer. So let's look at it. Look at chapter 16, the first four verses. He jumps right out of the chute to say, here's how I'm going to keep you. And he says this, they will put you out of the synagogue. I don't want you to fall away, so what am I going to do? I'm going to warn you that suffering's coming. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. They're going to kick you out of your places of worship. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He is telling them that they are getting ready to experience one of the greatest trials in their life. It is the loss of their Savior. And they will be mistreated. And yes, it says even killed. That's why out of the 11 followers, most of them are martyred. As church history lays out for us. You will be killed. They will kill you, it says. But they will think they're doing it in service to God. Just like ISIS today. Just like those who think, I'm serving God. And the way to do that is to kill those who oppose my view of God. That is not the real God. Because the real God, when He looked at betrayers like you and I, He laid down His life for them, not killing them. Everyone will die because of sin and they will receive a just punishment. But Jesus' response was radically different than this response. And when people choose in the name of religion to kill, it shows what this says. They have never known God the Father. They've never known Jesus. We'll talk about this, but everything hinges on Jesus. We can't X Him out of the equation. But before we move on, he's telling them, do not be surprised that suffering is coming your way. He has said in John 15, he says, they are hating you because they hate me. What's that mean? If you follow me, people will hate you. In varying degrees, suffering is coming. And isn't it crazy? The deep deception of those who think in the name of religion they are doing the right thing. The devil is a deceiver. He is a deceiver. And yet Jesus wants us to be aware of the deceit by telling us we will be hated by people. Some will even try to kill. He says, I want you to know what's coming. The military is crazy good at preparing their people for battle. There's boot camp, there's coaching, there's training, there's degrees of intense working out and all kinds of things that they do in order to prepare their soldiers for battle. But you know as well as I do, you walk in 
to whatever. You can only prepare so much. You can only prepare so much. But they do a great job of preparing them, trying to help them know what's coming. You see, it's a means of trying to care for them, wanting them to survive. Well, the military can't do it 100%, but Jesus says, I'm doing this. I'm telling you suffering's coming so that you will last. You will keep going. Don't be surprised that suffering's coming. Pastor John Piper said this. He was speaking to a group of pastors. And he said this. Pastors, you must, over the years that you are serving your people, woven into what you do, you must show your people from the Bible that suffering is not strange. The people of God must have a high expectancy for suffering. Think it not strange. The Bible is clear all throughout the Scriptures. Not only is are these people being prepared to suffer by Jesus telling them that it's coming, but He tells that all followers of Jesus, don't be surprised, 1 Peter, at the fiery ordeals that are coming your way. John chapter 15, they hated you because they hated me. There's hatred coming your way. Friends, we must not think it strange that we go through suffering. We are in a broken world, so suffering will exist. And in following our Christ, He promises that suffering will come. We must have a high expectancy because God also promises that He is using working suffering to make us more like Him. That suffering is actually necessary part of His plan to make us more like Him. And you might think that's not very right. That God would be working those things to shape a people. But that's exactly what God's Word says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, In this you rejoice. That's your salvation. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You hear that? You've been grieved with various trials. Trials necessary. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials necessary so that your faith would be refined and you would get to the end to give praise to Jesus. Trials are a necessary part. And Romans chapter 5 says the exact same thing. It says the exact same thing. It says not only that, that means not only should we rejoice in our salvation, but we also should rejoice in our sufferings. That does not mean that you say, yay, pain! I love it. It doesn't mean that you say, this doesn't hurt. It's the opposite of that. This pain is real. The suffering is difficult. I hate it. And yet, I can have a joy underneath it because my God is at work. And He is good. And He is keeping me through these trials. That's what this text says. 
you can rejoice knowing that suffering produces something. Suffering, suffering is working endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. There are so many times that I would have never prayed had the pain not come into my life. So many times I would have clung tightly to me and my might or my mind and not to Jesus had I not been exposed for what I am through suffering. There's so many times that my values are flipped upside down when I thought things or people were the ultimate. Pain brings in a clarity of what's most important. And so God says when you're in it, Know that I am working and producing something for your good and a hope. I'm working a hope in you that doesn't put you to shame because God's love, this is Romans 5, 2 and following, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is the second way He keeps us. He gives us His Holy Spirit. Not only does He say sufferings have to come and you can't be surprised at them, but He gives us His Holy Spirit. And this is what He goes on to say in the following verses. Look at the end of 4. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow fills your heart. You're sorrowful over the fact that I'm going to go away. I'm going to die. But he says this, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper's not going to come. But if I go, I will send Him to you. The next step that God says, here's how I'm going to help keep you, is that I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. How many times have you been through some type of trial and it was the presence of somebody else that helped you keep going? Many times. Let alone if you find somebody who can identify with your, with your pain or who was able to speak truth into your life, that person is even kind of ratcheted up on how helpful they are. Well, here he says, I'm actually going to give you my presence so that you're never alone. This isn't just some helper. This is the helper. And helper in the Scriptures has two understandings. One is in the judicial sense, as Pastor Byron shared with us a few weeks ago, that it is an advocate in a courtroom. It is one who is pleading your case. It is one who's telling you before the Father, is telling the Father, the judge, in the courtroom of heaven, that you are accepted by faith. He is your counselor, your advocate. But in case that image feels cold, you also have to understand helper is a good translation to say he's also the one who is with you, who's accompanying you, who's caring for you, who is interceding on your behalf. He is a helper. He's warm. And so he says here, if I go away, then the helper will come. This is how God has set it up. That means for Jesus, he must die, raise from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father. And if he does that, then he'll send 
the helper. Now, why is it important for this helper to come? Look what it says. And when he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world. This is one reason right here why it's better that Jesus go and the Spirit be given. Because what Jesus did when He came was self-limiting. He limited Himself so that He was only in certain regions of the world. But when He gives His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God will indwell His people to the ends of the earth. That's why He says in Acts 1.8, and you will be My witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that will happen when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And so what is greater is that it's not limited to some geographic region. It's better that the Spirit of Jesus Christ will come and dwell within us no matter where we are. No matter where we go, His presence will be there. But here's what He's doing. He's doing three things. Look. Because the world for John doesn't just mean broad in scope, like going beyond a geographic region. It also means badness. It means sin. So, what does He do with the world? It says, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is, a, is one who convicts. Verse 9. What does that mean? Well, He's going to tell us. And I'm really happy that He does that because I need some help on what this means. And then... I read this, and I still didn't know what it meant after I read his explanation. Have you ever been there before? Well, okay, that's the way it rolled for me, and that's where study comes in, okay? This is just help us understand how understanding God's Word happens. It doesn't happen just by reading it one time and hoping that magically it pops into the brain. It's, it takes study, it takes reading it, it might come the first time, it might come the tenth time, but we've got to get into God's Word and to study it. And so, he says, the world concerning he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does it mean to convict the world concerning sin? Well, he says, because they do not believe in me. So the Holy Spirit is one who takes those who have unbelief and did not believe in God, and he gives them affections. He shows them that this way is wrong, and he opens up the eyes to see the wrongness of this way to be convicted to walk in faith with God. This is something that's really helpful practically. Practically, who is the one who convicts of sin? Say it out loud. The Holy Spirit. Okay. Whose name is not there? Yours and mine. Right? The Holy Spirit is sent as the convictor of sin. My role is not to convict you of sin. My role is to open up God's Word and let His Spirit do His work. Does that mean you can never rebuke or say that this is wrong? No, but Jesus is crystal clear that before you run off on that tirade to convict someone, you must look first right here. Because you must go in love. Not an exasperation or anger or frustration. Just 
replay the movie of your life and tell me when you've gone in anger and in frustration and exasperation, how did that go? How'd that go for you? Did it bring peace? You might say, hey, well, they, they, they changed. Maybe for a little bit. The Spirit of God is the one who convicts. And when He convicts, He continues to convict. We must let the Spirit of God do His work. There are times that the Scriptures say speak, and there are times that the Scriptures say be silent. And it's because we can trust the Spirit of God to do His work. What else does He convict them of? He convicts them of sin, but He also convicts them concerning righteousness. And then He says, because I go to the Father. What's that mean? Well, it means that Jesus, when He was here on earth, He laid out the path of what righteousness was, what right living was. That's why He said when He was baptized, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm obeying my Father. I'm doing what is right. But now Jesus goes away, and so we need the Spirit of God to be with us to point us to what the right way is. He convicts us according to this is the right path, this is not. This is sin, this is not. So not only does He convict us that we might believe, but He also convicts us that we would know what path to walk, what is good and right. But then the last one is He also convicts concerning judgment. And then he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. That one hurt my head even worse than the other two. Because the ruler of the world is judged, he's going to convict us about judgment. Well, if you look at other places where the word judgment is used in the Gospel of John, you run into John chapter 7. And it's in John chapter 7, verse 24, he says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's that mean? It means that our judgment is fallible. We value things that shouldn't be valued. We think certain things are wise that are not wise. How will we know what true wisdom is? How will we know what to give our lives to? How will we know what is best? We will have the Holy Spirit given to us that we might discern what is right. And His ground for that is because the ruler of this world And it's a perfect verb, which means it's happened in the past and it will continue to happen. The ruler of the world has been judged. He has been shown to be false. His ways have been shown to be the wrong way. And the Holy Spirit will show you the right way. Not just the right way of obedience and how to walk, but to have wisdom and discernment to be able to say, that is not of you, God. We need the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God comes. And that's what He has given us. He has given us His Holy Spirit to keep us. Pull us back from sin. Help us to run in righteousness and live in wisdom. Now he says, verse 12, I've still got many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Just like any good preacher, you've got a lot to say and understands his limits. I know yours are about right now. So, we're going to keep rolling. Verse 13. When He gave His Spirit, the Spirit also is the Spirit of truth. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. 
Now, what's interesting here in the Gospel of John is that this specifically applies to his 11 followers. But as happens in the Gospel of John, he broadens out the application in other portions of Scripture. Here's what I mean. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you, 11 followers who are there, into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. The Spirit doesn't speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. This more than likely is reflecting on the fact that the Spirit of God will carry many of these men and help them to preserve actual Scripture. To preserve the experiences of the risen Christ. To preserve His words and to give them to the people of God. And He's saying, I will keep you by giving the Spirit and the Spirit is going to keep My Word so that you can have them. I will guide them into all truth. However, he says in John 17 later, he prays that all followers would be sanctified by this truth. Meaning the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word given to us. The Bible. That's the Spirit's role. He helps us to understand what we can't understand. So in that way, He guides us into all truth. And then He says, the Spirit's role is, He will glorify Me. The Spirit's role is to make much of Jesus. He is to dote on Jesus, to talk about Jesus. The Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord except from the Holy Spirit. That does not mean if you just say Jesus is Lord, that the Spirit of God has done that. It means that if you say with your heart, I love Christ. And I want to follow Him with my life. I want to submit my life to Him. And I believe I can't save myself. He's my only Savior. You didn't do that. The Spirit of God awakened the heart that you might profess that Jesus is beautiful. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit Himself highlights Jesus for His followers. And friends, we must be crystal clear. I've said this before, but we must be clear that our culture wants to get rid of Jesus. It's fine to be religious. It's fine to talk about God. It's fine to talk about prayer. But don't bring Jesus into the mix. That is how culture talks about Him. And this here says you can't have the Father without the Son. And the Spirit of God is make, bearing witness to Jesus Himself. So we must be able to say, look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. It says, In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. What's that mean? You don't need me to pray for you. You have direct access to to God through me. It's unraveling this sense of you don't need a, a physical mediator. You need Jesus and His death that gets you to Christ, that gets you to God the Father. It says Jesus is enough. It unravels 
all kinds of bad thinking. Salvation is not through human goodness. We cannot appease the wrath of God. Jesus alone could do it. He alone is the exact imprint of the Father. He alone could bear our sins. The house will fall apart if Jesus is X'd out. And so we must talk about Him and we must gauge our faith based upon our affections for Jesus. That's the Spirit's work and He will make us alive by giving us affections for Christ. And then as we conclude, He keeps us not only by telling us suffering is coming and giving us the Holy Spirit, but calling us to prayer. You see it there in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you. What's that nothing mean? It means when I die and raise from the dead, all your questions are going to be answered. It's going to be pretty clear. But then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you see what he's doing here? We've talked a lot about prayer over these past several weeks. But Jesus talked a lot about prayer. So if, if, you don't, if you've got a problem talking about prayer, you take it up with Jesus because I'm just trying to be faithful to what this says. And he says, how do we get joy? It's through prayer. Yes, prayer communicates humility. Yes, we should ask whatever and God hears our prayers. But why pray? Because He changes us and gives us joy through prayer. That's what prayer does. He morphs our heart. He gives us delight when we didn't have delight. And so He says, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then as he ends, he ends with this statement. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? I've made things clear. Do you now believe? In verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You'll not pose allegiance to Jesus. You will run away from him. And you will leave me alone. And yet he says, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, suffering, trial, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So when you stare at that suffering and that pain, Charles Spurgeon says this, Reflecting on a passage in Jeremiah that Jesus pours out that suffering in measure. The suffering is in measure. You will never be given more than you can handle. What's that mean? It means it will always be more than you can handle apart from God. But in Him, it'll never be more than you can handle. Why? Because He's overcome the world. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. He has overcome the world and therefore peace is possible. So he invites us in these moments to come to him in prayer. Because Jesus' hope in the midst of his suffering is that the Father would never leave him alone. And the conviction of prayer is that you believe the Father is there and he loves you and he invites you in to enjoy him. So how will your faith be kept? It'll be kept by not being surprised that suffering is there. 
by being sensitive to the Holy Spirit that He gives you and drawing near to the Father in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I ask that you would love us by giving us more of yourself. Teach us in these moments. I ask, God, that you would sweep over us with a, the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would awaken the spiritually sleeping. I ask that you would encourage the downcast. I pray, oh God, that you would use your word and its beauty to grip the human heart this morning. I pray for the one whose soul seems to be growing cold and unraveling. And I ask, O oh God, that you would convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Father, I pray that you will grant peace in the heart of the despairing. And I pray, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would do a great work in these moments to apply what we've heard today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.